Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. This time. This time. This time. On Vet Story. Vet Story. You know, I've written so many articles. I've written, uh, I've interviewed so many soldiers. I feel like I've told everyone's story about my own. I was a, uh, you know, trained sniper in Ranger Battalion. John waning is a term I learned within like the first <laughs> two chapters where it means hanging off a helicopter while steadying your gun. So the little bird just did like a dive bomber run. He's just gunning it down these like narrow Iraqi streets in Mosul, chasing after this car. He's sitting down inside the vehicle, looking at a black and white screen, shooting at a guy wearing tan man jams walking in the desert. <laughs> so you can understand why it's hard for him to get on target. Bam, you're in Syria. You get to deployment 8, 9, 10, 11, do you think he's the same person? One of these guys is going to catch a case of Jesus at some point and tell all to 60 minutes. I had rangers coming after me telling me that I was violating the ranger creed by talking about Navy SEALs committing war crimes. You work as an investigative journalist, you're putting boots to asses. Welcome to Vet Story. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and we got a good podcast for you today. Way more than just a book review or a biographical story about a veteran warfighter. Before this podcast is over, we'll dive deep into the dark issues about what's going on in the special operations community right now. And because half the world has got a cell phone in their pocket, we'll talk about a threat that not even the military, not even the CIA wants to talk about. But first, let's talk about our guest, Jack Murphy. He served as a sniper and then a team leader in 3rd Ranger Battalion and as a senior weapons sergeant with 5th Special Forces Group. The Army's 3rd Battalion, 75th Regiment, or 375 as they're known, are highly trained warfighters and highly revered in the combat community. Rangers, and as Jack once told me, bat boys, are always ready to go into battle anytime, anywhere. And that's how Jack spent years of his life. From Afghanistan to Iraq, this guy's been chasing Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and every other kind of AK-47 toting terrorist you can imagine. But he left the military in 2010 and went on to graduate from Columbia University with a BA in political science. Murphy is the author of books like Reflexive Fire, Target Deck, Direct Action, and Gray Matter Splatter. Which I gotta say, Jack, it's a hell of a name for a heavy metal band or an album, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> you're not a pop fiction author. You don't sit around and write by a fireplace with a MacBook drinking pumpkin spice craft beers while waxing poetic on the meaning of life. No, no, that's not Jack. He's like a special operations of journalism, reporting on war and terrorism and all things military, defense, and veteran. 
and he brings the insight of a guy who's actually been in a firefight rather than a big-brained policy wonk or a swivel-chair general that makes his guest appearance on CNN. Jack helped build one of the top paramilitary podcasts called Soft Rep, and his stories have been published by some of the top American news organizations. Unlike his previous writings, his memoir that we're going to talk about today, Murphy's Law, shares a different kind of story, the true story of his life. So with no further ado, Jack Murphy, damn glad you could join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome, man. Now, I want to add VO Pro to your resume because you voiced your own book, and I've been binging on it lately, and uh, the sound of your voice like puts me to sleep. It's 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 horrible. I, I, I don't even want to admit that to another man that I listen to you. Is uh, Am I ready to do like uh, voiceovers for anime and things like that? <laughs> well, maybe voiceovers for MMA. I don't know if you're... <laughs> I know. I want to play the uh, cutesy Japanese schoolgirls on anime. I, I think I'm up for it. I'm ready for this. <laughs> a little pitch change. Who knows what could happen, man? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, let's start with the book, man. You said you felt douchey about writing about yourself. And it's probably because what? Like so many other spec ops guys have in the past. It seems like every special operations guy writes a book. Uh, but you had a friend tell you writing this book was almost necessary and it forced you to deal with some of the shit that so many combat vets out there are dealing with. Tell me about that inspirational conversation you had. Yeah. I mean, these military memoirs are a a genre of sorts. I mean, they're a trope at this point and um, most of them fall into the category of, you know, some of them anyway, not all of them, but a, a lot of them, in my opinion, fall into the category of guys boasting about how many Brown people they went and killed in the middle East. And, uh, it just kind of grosses me out. And I've spent too much time around soldiers and too much time around war for that kind of BS. Um, so the the book is packaged as a military memoir and I'm on the cover looking cool and there's some dramatic fog behind me. And, and I mean, that's kind of well, quite honestly what you do to sell uh, a book. But as far as the contents of the book, I wanted it to be something very different. I wanted it to, to represent my own experiences, and I wanted to tell them in an uh, authentic way. The um, conversation that led to me actually doing this and writing the book, because I had put it off and I really didn't want to do it for some of the reasons I alluded to, um, but my friend Jim West, who's a retired uh, 7th Group, 7th Special Forces Group Warrant Officer, um, was talking to me and I told him once, I was like, you know, I've written so many articles, I've written, uh, I've interviewed so many soldiers, I feel like I've told everyone's story but my own. And Jim was like, well, yeah, you know, that's PTSD, that's you avoiding what you've been through. And um, I've just done so much writing on war and on the military that it got to the point where it's almost like it's dishonest to not write this book. Like I, I have interviewed everyone, you know, people going right back to the Korean War and ask them to open up to me and tell me the truth about what they experienced. But at the same time, here I am, and really I'm not wanting to talk about what I did and what I've been through. And so this book was kind of me, I think, closing a chapter on that part of my life. Well, let's jump into it, man. I love talking to you guys, uh, especially in the special operations community. because I find that like the things I'm dealing with in my life, I just draw some inspiration from uh, when I hear about guys that have like actually willed themselves to do something even harder. And, you know, it's true with pro athletes. I'm not just, you know, putting you up on a pedestal. But I mean, when I hear about somebody that has achieved something uh, greater than, you know, my mundane life, it helps me pull through my tough times. And one of the things I immediately got from 
early on in the book was that never give up. And even when quitting kind of seems okay. You know, many of us, like on our way into work, we're like, God, this job sucks. I could just quit and go do my own thing. I mean, like you can almost rationalize anything. Um, you didn't, you didn't accept failure, even though you experienced it. Talk to me about experiencing failure in ranger school. You actually failed the first time. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, uh, I flunked out of the land navigation portion of the course and, um, you know, I was asked if I wanted to recycle the course and I said, yeah, for, uh, guys who are in ranger battalion, it's mandatory. Basically, if you want to have any sort of leadership position, you need to graduate from ranger school. So it, uh, quitting was a non-starter um, for me, and um, I got placed in a recycle <laughs> platoon called Bonds Platoon, and I was there for a long time because uh, it went right through the holidays, right through the Christmas holidays, and then when it came back from Christmas in uh, 2004, um, we started the course again and went through it all over again. So, I mean... The thing is that these courses are not designed to be easy. Um, they're designed to weed people out. And the military does reward perseverance. Um, if you fail the first time, they will give you often an opportunity to try it again. Um, so I think they like to see those people who, you know, keep trying and keep chugging away at it. Um, not all of us, you know, especially myself, are Captain America. I was not the captain of the football team in high school. I was not the kid who always raised my hand in class because I had the answers. I was just average. Um, so <laughs> I, that was something I wanted to um, describe to the reader that, you know, special operations soldiers are not necessarily supermen. They're, we're not necessarily superheroes. Um, a lot of us are just people who, you know, threw our, our name in the hat. We volunteered and uh, and we manned up and sucked it up through some uh, some pretty tough stuff. So is drawing on that power, that will to get through it, is that something that's good advice for all of us to use, even in our own lives? Like when we think stuff's too much or, you know, we hate our job. I mean, is that something that we should draw on and know that it's deep within our own well? I would caution you or I would caution anybody against directly taking that mentality and trying to apply it to the civilian world um, just because they're so different. And in the civilian world, you may end up in some corporate job that is just killing you, you know, spiritually or psychologically or whatever. And you need to know when to quit. Um, I found this out myself when I was uh, when I was going to college and I was trying to do everything. I mean, I was. I was a husband. I was a father. I was um, working for this startup company. I was writing news articles. I was writing novels. I was a full-time student at Columbia University. I was doing so much. And in retrospect, what I realized was I was trying to recreate this high-stress environment I was used to working in in the military. But that isn't really um, – it doesn't really work in the civilian world, and you have to take care of yourself. So if you're at a dead end, if you're at some sort of impasse, um, you have to know when to quit and walk away um, for your own good. Uh, not, it's, not, um, it's not like going through BUDS or Ranger School or Special Forces Assessment and Selection where you just kind of got to go head down and just suck it up. I, I think in the civilian world, you've got to know when to walk away. Wow. And in sometimes our civilian life mimics situations you guys got into where it wasn't so much quitting as you knew when to like back off or when to change position or when to sure. change your tactics, you know, and sometimes sure. in life we're trudging through and we're not changing our tactics. Um, 
Really cool insight. See, I told you. I learn something from you guys every time I talk to you, man. <laughs> okay, uh, let's jump into combat stories real quick. The book jumps right into it. Uh, I got to say, uh, John waning is a term I learned within like the first <laughs> two chapters where I, I think you've now coined that. And it means hanging off a helicopter while steadying your gun to shoot bad guys down below. Um, what was one of your favorite combat missions you described in the book? Oh, wow. Well, that one was definitely exciting. I was, let's see, 21 years old and, um, you know, 160th Special Operations Aviation sent Little Bird helicopters down to our location. We were down in uh, Kaust on a fob called Salerno. And um, I was a, uh, you know, trained sniper in Ranger Battalion. You know, I'd been through a lot of training at that point, but I had never done what we were calling aerial platform shooting. And, um, it was just an interesting experience to say the least. I had to learn how to do that very quickly and then apply it in combat. Um, and I think I've described in the book to my sniper partner, Joe is on the other helicopter and how the little bird, they actually saw the, the target, the bad guy moving around inside the compound. So the little bird just did like a dive bomber run, run straight into the middle of one of these walled compounds in Afghanistan pulled up at the very last minute and just like washed out the entire courtyard of the compound in dust uh, just to keep this guy's head down as the uh, Humvees that, you know, the ground force element was on were like, you know, a minute, 30 seconds away just to delay the, these guys and, and slow them down. Um, so that was, that was definitely an incredible experience. Um, but then going to Iraq in uh, 2005, um, there were tons of operations. And I, I think I tried to point out in the book that, it was just like a frenzied summer of, you know, time sensitive targets and rolling out on one operation after the next during day, during the night. And you're just completely exhausted. Um, but I still tried to tease out some funny moments um, as, as well as some horrifying moments from that deployment in the book. And in fact, uh, <laughs> I loved the chase scene with some private driving the vehicle and you're kind of yes. you're, you're like heads up to outside the vehicle and he's flying because they've said that one of your high value targets or an HVT is in front of you on this you know in this car and you're oh. chasing this opal through the city streets and this kid's just like flooring it and you're like yeah and that, that vehicle it was a eight-wheeled striker armored vehicle and i mean off the top of my head i think they weigh like 23 tons they're uh, just huge vehicles and he's just gunning it down these like narrow Iraqi streets in Mosul chasing after this car. And I mean, like it felt like we're going up on four wheels on one side. And I mean, I just I think the average person just has no idea what it's like to have your life resting in the hands of a 19 year old army private um, <laughs> who is behind the wheel of a 23 ton armored vehicle. Uh, I just I don't think the average person gets that. Um, yeah, so yeah, that was definitely an interesting experience. Uh, one more, uh, there was one mission you went on where you captured six and a half men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was one of the first missions we did during the daylight. Um, because we really wanted to operate during the night only because our night vision goggles give us such a big advantage over the enemy. But this was the uh, 2005 General Stanley McChrystal um, high value target capture kill industrial grade counterterrorism machine 
right? So we're doing <laughs> operations during the day very soon. Um, and they're just sending us out at all hours. So we went out on the, on, I think it was our first daylight mission of that deployment um, into Mosul. Um, I was on the vehicles because I was the, the commander, so to speak, the tank commander or tactical commander on one of the strikers. Um, the assaulters went into the target structure um, and within, you know, a minute or so, our lieutenant, our platoon leader, he comes up over the radio and he says, objective secured, six and a half men detained. There's six and a half fighting age males detained. And uh, we're all listening to this like six and a half. Like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> and uh, our company commander back at the Ford operating base, he gets on the net and he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And the PL comes back over the net. He's like, we've detained six men and one midget. <laughs> We're all like just busting up laughing on the vehicles. And um, a few minutes later, he says, you know, okay, we're, uh, we're pulling off the objective. Uh, we're taking off the fighting age males and we're packing the midget up in a rucksack. And <laughs> the company commander comes over the net, starts screaming. He's like, leave the fucking midget. We don't need him. And, uh, yeah, there were, there were pictures of the PL and, uh, and that, that little man, um, posted up in our, uh, tactical operations center for quite a while after that. <laughs> that is awesome. That is just, uh, and you know what, look, I mean, it's not PC, but frankly, no, it's, no. it's the gallows humor that gets us through some of these really tough times. And, uh, also the, the dude, that made me laugh out loud when I was with special forces in 2009, we were back in the same city and we crashed a wedding. Um, that was pretty fun. It's like a 16 year old girl getting married off to a terrorist. Oh my God. Were there, were there past hors d'oeuvres? Did you at least get some crab cakes? No, no. But there was a goat. The dowry was, uh, just sitting there panting in the courtyard throughout the uh, duration of that mission. <laughs> that goat owes you one. I take it. He never got sacrificed. That's good. That's good. I feel like maybe the girl owes us one too. <laughs> uh, that's, it's funny. All right, where do I want to go next now with this? Um, let's see, we did combat, we did, uh, you know, all things twisted steel and sex appeal. Uh, let's switch gears. You've got an interesting background as a journalist, and the story before you became a journalist is, well, it's a peculiar path as to how you got there. I mean, special forces, and then college, and studying, you know, alongside some of the brightest minds in New York City. Tell me about that journey. Tell me about that path, taking you from the Army to college. Yeah, it was definitely accidental in my case. Um, journalism was not really something that was on my mind, but writing was. Um, when I first got out of the military, I had this idea about writing a, uh, a military thriller, right? There's a lot of these books out there. I grew up reading them. Um, some of them are very good. Some of them aren't. Um, but one of the things that I noticed is that there are very few people with a military background actually writing these novels. So I figured, hey, I have the background. Why don't I take a stab at it? So I wrote the book and I started a, a small like blog um, writing about things, about this and that, um, to try to support the book actually. And I got recruited by somebody at military.com to write for a gear and gun blog called Kid Up. And I worked there for maybe a year writing. And um, one of the other writers at that blog um, approached me and asked if I would be interested in starting, you know, our own website, our own independent website. 
And uh, I agreed and we went off and we did that. And, um, you know, it started off like, okay, we're writing about guns and gear. Um, We're writing about the experience of being in the military and some of those first person stories. But I kind of realized this website is going to have any relevancy. It can't be just me telling war stories forever Um, or other people telling war stories, you know, about back in 2005 in Mosul. This is how it was. Uh, I realized that we had to actually break news. We had to do our research. We need to um, send uh, journalists abroad and do actual boots on the ground reporting. And so that's kind of how I fell into journalism. Um, It wasn't something that I had planned. Hmm. And this, what I found interesting is you were all the while or through part of this journey, you were in college. And what school were you going to? I was at Columbia, uh, the School of General Studies, majoring in political science. So I was a full-time student. I was a father um, with a a young daughter. I was writing these novels, and I was with this startup company writing articles every day. So I I was all over the place. (laughs) Man. Well, it sounds like you replaced your up-tempo military lifestyle with another up-tempo lifestyle, which you actually dive into in the book. And I'm going to leave that for readers right there. But that's an interesting thing. Uh, The other interesting takeaway from your college years that I got from the book is that you were actually a defender of college and universities. Um, I hear it so often in the military and especially in my – you know, my media circles that I travel in, uh, that colleges and universities are these bastions of just snowflake farms and that, you know, they're just future protester Petri dishes and all the professors are whiny bastards and all, yeah. the, all the kids are these just lazy little uh, entitled pukes. Um, you went to arguably one of the top schools in the country where I could see that shoe fitting, but yet you said when you walked out of there, you didn't feel it was quite like that. Share with me just sort of your feeling on what the college experience was like and your fellow students to you. Yeah, I didn't find that really. I mean, there's some of it there, some of the, you know, snowflake, um, you know, I'm offended, I'm triggered. I mean, you can find a little bit of that out there, of course. Um, and you got to keep in mind, these are mostly predominantly young people in college. Right. You know, they're 18, 19, 20 years old. They're young people without a lot of life experience. But um, man, I, I mean, it, it, it was not reflective of the boomer memes that you find on the Internet. Um, you know, the people who say these things about college, I have to wonder if they've actually spent any time on campus. Uh, <laughs> I, I would offer that, you know, college is sort of like the selection course for us after we come out of the military. It determines whether or not you're going to be successful on the outside. Not in all, not in all cases. You know, if you've started a business and you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year, good on you. You probably don't need to go to college. But most veterans are not in that place, so it makes a lot of sense to use your GI Bill to to further yourself and better yourself. Um, I was in the political science department, and it is really not about opinions. Um, no one really wants to hear your hot take on politics, uh, especially the professors. No one's really interested in that. They're interested in talking about facts and, uh, discussing research. Uh, it, it just, I mean, I, I did an interview recently, um, for Fox and the person interviewing me asked if I sold my soul. 
um, by majoring in political science. And I realized at that point, I was like, this woman has no idea what political science is. She thinks it's like some sort of like partisan hack thing you go into. And, uh, you know, you, you have, uh, you know, you offer up your takes on partisan politics. Uh, one of the first things they'll tell you in political science when you start taking intro classes is that all that stuff you see on TV is not politics. That's entertainment. You know, politics is something very different. It's about the practical implementation of effective policy. Um, and it's about power. It's about how you acquire power and how you acquire resources. And in that sense, it's about something a little bit darker. Um, but it's also a social science that uses data um, and statistics and studies movements and trends and, and different political dynamics. So, I, I mean, I think that you know, going to college for me on a personal level was very helpful because I had the the micro aspect. I, I, I had been a soldier on the ground and I had seen the tactical um, scenarios unfold there and how all of that works. But going to school and studying political science and international politics in an academic venue um, kind of broadened my horizons and gave me a lens through which to interpret some of my own experiences, but also the things I was seeing and reporting on later on as a journalist. Very cool. And I'll just pump the brakes for one second and say, that's exactly why I was glad to talk to you after hearing your book. Um, because <laughs> you defied the stereotype to me just with that little story you shared, you defied the stereotype because I've met and interviewed so many guys, whether they're spec ops guys, uh, special forces guys, you know, bat boys and seals and rangers and you guys are this breed, right? And I see the beard and I see the gnarly tats sometimes and I'm like, man, those guys are cool. They get, you know, they're just killers. They're cool. But yet you're a thinker. Tattoos and tabs, like that doesn't get you through life. It just doesn't. Like that's just ego. That's just vanity. And at some point you have to get over that. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, I don't want to blow too much sunshine up your ass, but I, I, I thought that you were just so cool because I was like, you're unlike any of the guys I've met in this arena. So I, I want to move forward now. I don't want to talk about your first big story you broke. I'll save that for the readers. But I'll say this, that it was the first of many stories that you would go out with this website and you would then go pursue with boots on the ground. And one of the favorite things I loved was your story about sneaking in and out of Iraq to get a story. Just share with me I don't the cliff note version of just kind of how that went down because it, it was gripping to hear you talk about it. And at one point I had no idea how the hell you were even going to get back safely over the border. And it was you yeah, and your girlfriend, either. a camera and like a notepad. It was like old school yeah. journalism shit. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Um, that was uh, when I got smuggled into Syria. So I, I flew into Solomonia um, in Iraq in Northern Iraq or Kurdish Iraq, however you want to phrase it. Um, and met up with a representative from the PKK, which is a Kurdish guerrilla group in northern Iraq, but also northern Syria and parts of Iran. <coughs> Excuse me. Sure. Um, and it got fed into the underground rat line, so to speak, that they used to smuggle um, fighters and also weapons across the border from northern Iraq into northern Syria. So I was driven in a, in a pickup truck. Uh, through a bunch of checkpoints out into the mountains of northern Iraq. And, um, you know, it was basically very similar to the Robin Sage exercise I had gone through as a part of my special forces training, uh, which is an unconventional warfare training exercise. I mean, it, it was it was just like it to a T. I mean, you get out of the pickup truck, it's at night, you're carrying your backpack, 
Um, another person comes and meets you. You walk through the mud uh, for you know what seems like forever, but it probably was only like 20 minutes, uh, and up to a gorilla base, which is kind of built into the side of a mountain and camouflaged over with uh, vegetation and tarps and things like this. And you go inside the the uh, this first structure, the little bunker, and there's like a single light bulb hanging from the ceiling, and there's all these flags of the different Kurdish groups hanging from the wall, and all of these fighters, uh, these guerrillas who are there in the camp, stand up and one by one shake their hand, shake your hand, and introduce themselves, and then you sit there smoking cigarettes and drinking chai and and kind of shooting the breeze, um, and it just went from there. You know, I was in that camp for a few days. And um, when the conditions were right, I was smuggled across the border into Syria um, by going across a river on a small inflatable motorboat. Um, this was in the dead of night and, you know, went across the river, came off on the other side and bam, you're in Syria. <laughs> Man. And this is like at the time, I mean, we don't even know in the States what they're doing over there, but they're actually, you know, the Syrian government's fighting these people. Uh, <clears throat> you were off the radar of any sort of association with American forces or any yeah. friendlies. Um, you could easily just got caught up and caught in the crossfire there of a nasty civil war that essentially is still going on today from what I can gather. Yeah. I mean, it, it was very early on in the war is 2014, right after I had graduated from college. I think that, Maybe there had only been one or two other journalists in northern Syria, um, the area called Rojava. Um, so, I mean, I was I don't want to say I was the first. That probably wouldn't be true. But I was amongst the first um, very early on. And the situation was uh, fluid, to say the least. <laughs> very cool. Yeah. Nice word. Fluid. Right. That's a <laughs> that's a good way to describe it. Well, uh, in the book, you'll be riveted when you hear your description of uh, what happened to you and your girlfriend before you were allowed to leave Syria and make it across that river. Yeah, how we got out. I'm not going to give it away because that was just the badass, ballsy move, and I would have been scared. (laughs) I would have been scared shitless, and it's not even so much that you were a badass. You just, no, no. I would have never taken that assignment, and if any assignment I ever cover comes down to something that stressful, I'm just going to cry. And you didn't apparently cry at any time during this. So well, that's, uh, that's also, I mean, speaking of journalism, that's why you don't have so many um, of these news agencies sending people into combat zones like this um, because there's insurance companies involved and liability. And, you know, if I get killed or the journalist gets killed, the family could sue the agency. Right, yeah. Uh, so, so they just rely on stringers. They rely on locals to go and do their dirty work. And, you know, if they get killed, so what? Right. Yeah, well, uh, that's why I never did stringing. When I, that's why I never went to be a stringer when I got out of the Navy myself. I, I, I needed one size bigger testicles, and uh, I had a few too many beers to drink back home. So uh, that's what kept me stateside. Um, where else do I want to go? You went on to cover some other amazing things, and I don't want to specify all of them, but sex crimes is certainly something yeah. that you've covered extensively, and uh, I don't want to get into the details of that because it's riveting to hear you tell that story. But it's a look within our own military, and some pretty vicious stuff. It's just some really unsavory, almost uncomfortable conversations that you've had to have in order to make the story get the light it desperately deserved to show kind of the crimes that are going on within our own military. But I want to steer away from the specifics of the story to something that I took away from you. And that is, if you want to be liked, don't be a journalist. 
<laughs> and this is really where your coverage of that story and what goes on inside the tribe within the tribe ended up creating enemies. And it got personal for me because as a journalist, I've covered things. And just in the Facebook thread, you see people like calling you names and hating on you. And you're just trying to like get the story out there or report somebody else's story. And you can get hated so easily. Talk to me about how journalism is like not a place for those with thin skin. Yeah, well, I mean, anytime you're a writer, um, you're you're subject to criticism, and you know, as a writer, you're not above criticism. You have to keep that in mind. I mean, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got very early on as a writer was that it's nice when people are nice to you, but they don't have to be nice to you, um, and that is just um, it, it greatly exaggerated when you work as a journalist, especially if you work as an investigative journalist. Or another way to put it is when I was in ranger school, one of the ranger instructors said, you know, you could get negative peer evaluations in ranger school because when you're in charge, you're putting a boot in your subordinate's ass and motivating them to do their job. And some people don't want that boot there and they're going to resent you for it. And when you work as an investigative journalist, you're putting boots to asses. I mean, I don't think that's a, a technical term or a, or a, a term for polite society, <laughs> right, but right. you're digging into some stuff that people don't want to talk about, that they don't want exposed. Um, er, er, there, there are powerful people in the military or wherever else you're covering politics or whatever else who don't want their blemishes and don't want their dirty laundry getting aired out. And they will you know, personify you as the enemy when it happens, you know, especially with the military, you know, if you report something negative that the military does, um, other veterans feel that you're tarnishing not only the military and their own accomplishments, but it's like you're going back in time and you're tarnishing all of the good memories they have about their time in the military. So what I've done over the years has been I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it's been traumatic for a lot of other veterans to read that stuff and heartbreaking. And, you know, it is heartbreaking um, for me, especially, I can say, you know, it's like one of those things where you you get to meet your heroes and you're disappointed. Mm, you know, um, yeah. I've met my heroes and, you know, I've met some incredible, incredible people but with the good comes the bad. And I've also been incredibly disappointed with the United States military in so many circumstances. Mm, and that's probably why they say never meet your heroes, uh, because it's true. I mean, it's true in entertainment and music and sports. I mean, there's, you know, we're mortal human beings with our flaws. And sometimes what you read about someone and then you get to see when you are the investigative journalist, um, the two, yeah, the it, two don't square. They're not the same people. Simple. It's also easier for them to shoot the messenger. Let's talk specifics just real quick about uh, the news headlines of the day. And sure. I know that this kind of dovetails into what we're talking about. Um, most recently, of course, you know, the news that, um, what is it, the head of U.S. Special Operations Command pulled back that SEAL team uh, from deployment uh, for shenanigans. And I don't know the details specifically there, but that's like a topic that, for example, you could be reporting on, or maybe you have reported on uh, something going on within the special operations community. Are these SEAL teams, are these special ops guys doing shit over there that we just don't want to know about? 
Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to that specific SEAL team, but I, I think that, that that platoon was pulled out of theater and publicly announced the way it was is telling. Um, I have to suspect that the Navy is getting a wee bit annoyed with the SEALs at this point and some of the stuff that's been going on and how they keep landing in the, you know, in the headlines over and over and over again. Not to sound too salty about this, but I've been writing and talking about this stuff since like 2012, 2013. And um, it made it, I mean, speaking of making enemies, um, I, I was ostracized by my peer group for even talking about this stuff. Um, I had rangers coming after me telling me that I was violating the ranger creed just by talking about Navy SEALs committing war crimes. Um, the, the amount of uh, fear, in consternation that that conversation started is something I've never really seen before or since. And, um, you know, here we are all these years later and it's almost passe. It's like the seals are the butt of every joke, rightly or wrongly. Um, and it, and I think the entire country is aware that this unit has cultural and leadership issues within it. I, I wrote an entire novel back in 2014 called direct action. And the plot of the novel is absolutely fictional. But within that book, I described the cultural issues in specifically in SEAL Team 6 and where they came from, how they came about, and where it's all kind of going and describe some of the things, the cultural aspects in these units and some of the different scandals brewing behind the scenes. And I was naively hoping that, you know, maybe that book would, you know, send up a signal uh, fire or, or something like that and, and let people know that, you know, maybe we should start reforming the system from inside. Clearly that didn't happen. Um, and now things are just getting worse and worse and worse, um, which is what tends to happen when you ignore a problem. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I can speculate on where it's all going if you want me to, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what I wouldn't mind talking to you about, though, is like um, with respect to the Gallagher trial recently, of course, Navy SEAL yeah. Chief Eddie Gallagher uh, was found not guilty of uh, premeditated murder and war crimes and such, uh, was found guilty of posing with a corpse. Um, I talked to Paul Zolder at Task and Purpose and, and, and had a great conversation with him about the stuff he heard during that trial because he attended it and he heard the witness testimony back and forth. Um and it became a real he said, she said kind of thing. And everybody was throwing yeah. dirt at each other. But in your experiences, um, is some of that darker stuff accurate? I mean, are guys really doing some pretty nasty shit? Not just SEALs. But, I mean, is there stuff going on in spec ops communities that is just we don't want to know about because it, we wouldn't we wouldn't feel good? I mean, it, it, there, there's stuff out there that's worse than anything that has been revealed thus far. And I don't know if it'll all come out in the wash or not, but I have to believe that there's an ex-wife sitting on a hard drive full of deployment photos somewhere, or that one of these guys is going to catch a case of Jesus at some point and decide he wants to tell all to 60 minutes. Mm. I mean, I, I know, I know people, you know, serious people in the special operations community and, as well as in the intelligence community who think that some of these units are going to end up being disbanded. Um, when all is said and done. Yeah. And if we could talk to our grandfathers and our great grandfathers, you know, I wonder if this was pervasive in world war two, we just didn't have cell phones back then, you know, was I, this, world... it certainly happened, but the, I mean, world war two didn't go on long enough for it to become like an SOP. 
um, yeah. Yeah. which has happened. I mean, there were guys who had kill books of the little girls and little boys in Afghanistan that they murdered. Like, that's how, like, it is so surreal. Like, people think I'm just like crazy. I'm making this stuff up. Um, and I was having a, I was having a drink with a friend of mine who is a CIA paramilitary guy. And he was like telling me similar stories. Like, yeah, those guys would murder people all the time. And then our indige, the Afghans look at us like, dude, that's f***ed up. And, uh, and I was like, you know, I'm glad to hear you say this because like, sometimes I feel like I'm just like, you know, you, like I said in the book, you feel like Russ Cole, you're like, am I going insane or is this real? And they're like, no, it's real. Mm. These are, there's bad people out there. How much of it though, is the fact that we've been at war for so long? Because I mean, I know that, um, my wife's grandfather, for instance, was at the battle of the bulge and, um, you know, he saw just some incredible combat and has with him, you know, a Nazi 22 rifle has with him, the armband of an SS soldier medals and such. And I don't know the story behind how he got those, but I do know that back then there wasn't an iPhone in everyone's pocket and people weren't right. documenting things. Is there something to be said for the fact that technology helps us acquire all these images? And two, is there something to be said for the fact that we've put people like yourself in conflict and in combat zones for so long now? Isn't it only natural that there'll be like a moral attrition? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can send a, a deploy a guy the first time, the second time, and he's a perfectly good person, you know, right? Morally, ethically, legally, he's on track. You get to deployment eight, nine, 10, 11. Do you think he's the same person? You know, what if I had stayed in the military and I had deployed another five or six times and I had, I had seen some more gnarly stuff. Um, would it have changed me? Of course it would have. And of course I would like to think that I would not have gone way off track, but it's easy for me to say that I'm sitting here on vacation in Italy right now. Right. I'm not the guy who's on his 11th deployment in Afghanistan. So, yeah, I think absolutely that we have these soldiers, um, a very small group of soldiers who are asked to share a greater and greater sense of the burden of this war time and time again, absolutely affects things. I mean, as far as the, the technology evolving, yeah, um, and it's getting worse and worse. And it's something we haven't grappled uh, very well with. Um, both from an espionage perspective and as far as trying to conduct clandestine operations with our military forces, is you can't do that the way we used to. Uh, you used to be able to deploy a special forces team to the Congo back in the 50s or 60s, and no one would ever know about it. Today, that's not possible because every, I mean, poor, illiterate people in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever else have a smartphone in their pocket that they can take pictures with and upload those pictures to Facebook. So it becomes impossible to wage these same type of clandestine operations. And the military is still very much in denial about that. I think the CIA is a little bit in denial about it, but probably a little bit further ahead. They just don't know how to grapple with working in a open source environment where nothing is secret anymore. You know, that's, that may be where we're heading. Um, there, there are numerous, um, situations where that's unfolded, where you had soldiers, um, that we tried to insert into Libya and they were, you know, their pictures were taken the second they came off the aircraft. 
Um, you had the other situation in Niger where guys were wearing a GoPro camera, which was captured by the enemy. Um, so there are all of these different ways that your imagery can be captured and then distributed. And uh, I don't think we've even come close to grappling with the impacts of that technology. I mean, what happens when some of that imagery starts getting cross-referenced uh, with off-the-shelf facial recognition software and put through social media and you start figuring out who these guys are, where they live, where their families live? Like, what's the long-term implications of that? And I, I just don't think we've really been been able to grapple with it as of yet. Holy that's badass, Jack. We just literally went from like uh, moral attrition from war and evil war crimes and murders to like the implications of vengeance in an open source world that we live in. Uh, I'm going to steal that phrase from you, open source, because that's the best way to describe the world we live in today. Everybody can upload shit to Facebook. Everybody can take right. a picture. Uh, crazy, crazy. Um, I could spin off and do a whole nother hour with you. I just really appreciate it, man. Talk to me about what's new with Jack Murphy. Um, obviously, we're running around Italy right now. That sounds like fun, but talk to me about what's next, man. Uh, another book coming out. Do we have anything else going on? Um, well, I recently left my job working for the website where I was editor in chief. So I'm currently kicked back on vacation. Uh, and you know, we'll start looking for a new job when I uh, get back to the States. But in the meantime, um, yeah, I plan on, I'm working on my fifth novel, um, called Persona Non Grata, which I'm not sure when it's going to be out. I'm still working on the draft. Uh, I'll put, I'm putting together a book proposal for another nonfiction book about, it's a historical military book, a factual book, you know, not historical fiction. And, um, I started up a new live stream on YouTube that you can go and find. Uh, it's going to be the continuation, uh, or I shouldn't say that, but it's going to be in the same vein of the work that I've done previously, inter interviewing special operations veterans and other interesting folks. And uh, you'll be able to find that on YouTube, and I'll probably you know turn it into a podcast at some point as well. Very cool. Well, I know if you Google Jack Murphy, you find a hell of a lot of interesting things, and uh, not the least of which is uh, your book, Murphy's Law. It's out now everywhere you find books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere that they sell bound books of paper, uh, you can get Murphy's Law. And like I said, buddy, it was one of the uh, one of the best reads I'd had. I listened to it, so uh, I actually, you know, Got familiar and um, okay with your voice after about the first hour. So. <laughs> no, I'm happy to hear that the book worked for you and that you got something out of it. I definitely feel like it's not in the same vein as other books in this genre. It's uh, it's a warts and all kind of story. It's, it's not a tell-all um, by any means, but it is kind of a tell-all about myself, um, about the, the good things I've done, the bad things I've done, you know, the ups and downs. And I, I really wanted the younger generation of Americans who are thinking of joining the military to read it and kind of see the good and the bad, you know, and, and take it all in before they make their decisions. Very cool, brother. Warts and all. Murphy's Law. You are Jack Murphy, your friend of the show, man. I can't wait to have you back, brother. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, having me on again. 